Uh, Folks, did you know the end is near? How about that for a smooth transition? Wow. Uh, Yeah, Uh, sometimes you see people carrying signs like that. The end is near, you know. See that football game sometimes when the camera shows people in the stands. If it It's not John 3.16, it's the end is near. Well, look, I I don't know exactly if the end is near, but I do know the end is nearer than it has ever been. And that lovely topic is what we're going to speak about tonight, a nearer end. For sure, it's nearer. And the reason why I want for us to talk about this is because Paul talked about it in Romans 13. That's the book we've been going through. Romans 13, and he has some things to say about it. You'll see. Beginning in verse 11 of this chapter, Romans 13, verse 11, this is how it begins. Do this. Kind of unusual. Uh, If you were just to have those two words, do this, what would be the logical question that would be raised in your mind? Yet, do what? And so you have to slow down and think, do what? Well, the answer is everything that Paul has told us to do since the beginning of chapter 12. The first 11 chapters uh, were based on uh, truth. This is what is true. And chapter 12 to 16 uh, are a response to truth. So the beginning... This is what's true. The back part of Romans, now this is what you're supposed to do. And and so everything Paul has said from chapter 12 on and through the rest of the book is what he means when he says, do this. And you ask the question, I mean, I did, why? Uh, and, And the answer is given in the next phrase, knowing the time. Do this knowing the time. And this is a little perplexing to me because I'm sure you will agree just about everybody knows what time it is. For instance, um, who here has a, how many of you have time pieces with you? Whether you consult your phone, your wristwatch, could you just raise your hand just a little bit? So that's like everybody. So you know what, what time is it? Do you mind uh, checking out? Yeah. So what does he mean knowing the time? It is obvious that all of us are time-bound, time-conscious, time-sensitive. Well, uh, he's really not talking about clock time, chronological time. See, there's two words in this, in the original language, Greek, for time. And one has to do with hours and seconds and calendar or clock time. That is not the word Paul uses here. He uses a word that really means time in the sense of the atmosphere or age in which we live. And he's saying you have to know what's going on in your day. You are enveloped by stuff. You're in an age, an era that is unusual, even challenging. And Paul is saying you have to do, you have to behave rightly in light of the time, in light of the age, and which you live. So in essence, Paul is saying, do this knowing what kind of time it is. And what kind of time is it? 
Well, he goes on to say, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. What time is it? Paul says it's time to get up, time to awaken from sleep. So I was thinking about sleep since Paul mentions it, and some of you are uh, awfully close to being engaged in it right now. Um, So I, I simply looked up the dictionary definition of sleep. It's quite interesting. Listen, sleep is a condition of body and mind, such as that which typically recurs for several hours every night, in which the nervous system is relatively inactive, the eyes closed, the postural muscles relaxed, and consciousness is practically suspended. In other words, sleep is when you don't know what's going on. It's okay. You're not supposed to. Sleep is a time of really diminished awareness. You don't, you're not aware what's happening. I remember when I was a little kid, we, we lived in a house. We rented a house. And in the back was kind of a storage shed, sort of a garage, you might say, detached, in the back of the house. Well, it caught fire in the middle of the night. I slept through the whole thing. I got up the next day, I was a little kid, and I saw this thing, you know, it was just leveled. And the cinders were burning and everything. I was really mad at my parents. In fact, I am to this day, as I think about it, because they didn't wake me up. I missed out on like a cool fire. Uh, But but this is the point. How how do you sleep through a fire? There, There were like fire engines, lights and hoses and you know, axes and all this stuff, and I was, I, I was relatively inactive, according to this. My postural muscles were relaxed, and my consciousness was practically suspended. So that's kind of what, what sleep is, and Paul says, knowing the time, you, he's speaking to us, by extension, he's talking to Christians, believers, knowing the time, says he, you ought to wake up from sleep. In other words, be aware, conscious, alert, sensitive to the things of God. What things? Well, the end of things as we now know them. In fact, folks, those, I think, who do not know the Lord do not know really what time it is. Uh, Folks, apart from Christ, seem to think the world, as they know it, is uh, is going to continue forever. Uh, There will be no no changes. But it's different for us as, as Christians. The Christian knows what time it is. The Christian knows what age we live in. The Christian sees what God is up to, what God is allowing to happen. The Christian knows that God is directing history to a predetermined end. And the Christian, in our day, sees signs of it all the time. And so the believers to whom Paul wrote at Rome, and again us by implication, are living in a very, very wonderful and special time lodged between two events. And these are the events the first coming of the Lord Jesus and the second coming of the Lord Jesus. Those believers to whom Paul wrote in Rome were in-betweeners. They were in that uh, 
space between these two great events. And so too are you and I. The Bible refers to that period bounded by the first and second coming of the Lord as the last days. Did you know that? The last days. So what time is it, folks? It is the last days. But you say, now wait just a second. The Christians to whom Paul wrote 2,000 years ago were told the same thing as we're speaking about today. But it's been 2,000 years and things haven't come to a climactic end. Oh, now, you know what the scriptures say with the Lord? A day is like, and a 1,000 years is like, yeah, so I mean, we don't reckon time the way he, an eternal being, does. And, and so we're lodged in uh, between these two magnificent events, the first and second coming uh, of the Lord Jesus. And Paul is saying, get up, uh, wake up, don't snooze, don't be insensitive, be aware of the age in which we live. We are living in a time right now that could at any moment culminate in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you just let that sink in for a second? I had to put my Bible down when I was studying for tonight just to remember, oh my goodness, as real was his first coming, so too will be his second coming. It's not a myth. It's not fiction. It's true. Oh my goodness. We're living in a day that could culminate at any moment in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and Paul says this in different words uh, in verse 11, the rest of the verse. He says, for now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. Every day, in other words, brings us closer to that final day when all that we've anticipated in Christ Jesus will become a reality. And so Paul says, wake up from a spiritual numbness, a sleep. Wake up for there's a grand event coming. It's an event we're all looking forward to. And every breath we take brings us that much closer to this event, the return of the Lord Jesus that's the grand event that we look forward to. It's the basis of our hope. He's coming again. And when he returns, you see, he will bring our salvation to completion. Now, you may be thinking, wait just a second. I thought I was saved. I accepted the Savior. You people told me I'm saved. You, you are. But salvation has three magnificent phases. The first one means you have been saved. The second means you are being saved. And the third means you will be saved. So there's a past, present, and future ramification to salvation. Look, in the past, a legal judgment was pronounced upon us. It's called justification. We didn't grow into it we inherited it as a gift. It's an event in time. It's as if the judge's gavel went down and the case was dismissed against us. God, the judge of all the world, said, you are acquitted based on the merits of my son. Oh, you're not 
guilt less, sin less, but the penalty for it all has been paid by my son. That's justification. That aspect of salvation is a done deal. Then there's the one we're involved in now. That is not an event. That's called a process. It's called sanctification, which means to be set apart, to be made holy as he is holy. Now, that doesn't take place overnight. Uh, That takes place each day of our lives. As the Lord Jesus becomes more alive in us, as we seek him in his word, as we do what it says, as we fellowship in a body of believers, as we pray, as we say goodbye to the old way of life. So sanctification is a, is a process. Tim, my friend, you're in the process now, buddy boy. And isn't that good? The Lord Jesus, who saved you, your sins are cast behind his back, is now going to change you from the inside out, conforming you, think about this, Tim, to his image. And you're going to get impatient because I know you. And, uh, but you're just going to have to slow down because the Lord is just so wise. And he has a development growth program designed specifically for you. Now we're a part of it as your church family. We need each other to grow. But it's going, to, it's going down. Now some here have been engaged in that process for a while already. So they're further down the road. You see what I mean? So don't get nervous. Those are good examples. Don't get, don't get nervous. Don't say, oh, my goodness, I'm not where they are. Yeah, but you, you will be. We all, we all will be. Why? Because the last phase of salvation is called glorification. That is not a process. That's an event. That's when, boom, in an instant, the very presence of sin in our life is removed. We enter new bodies fit for eternity, fit for heaven. So when we're saved in the past sense, the penalty of our sin is erased, taken care of. When we're saved in the present sense, sanctification, the power of sin is being minimized and reduced. And when we are saved in the final sense, glorification this is so good. The very presence of sin will be removed from our members. And so Paul is saying, get excited, folks. Do you realize, based upon where you are in time, all of that, the fulfillment, completion of your salvation at the return of the Savior, the Lord Jesus, do you realize that is nearer than when you first believe? I don't know how near, I just know it's a nearer grand end. Salvation, Paul says, is nearer to us than ever, than when we first believed. What a glorious event it will be when Christ returns. In fact, Paul previously in Romans said this about it. It's in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time There's a lot of it, is it not? Uh, Some of our wonderful church members are suffering even now over the loss of loved ones, whether expected or premature. They're still grieving. I didn't say without hope. I didn't say that. But they still hurt. They still hurt. They're suffering. It's undeniable. number of our Brethren are being uh, 
terribly persecuted in different parts of the world. And uh, what is being foisted upon them, uh, it's unspeakable evil uh, that's happening to our family members in different parts of the world. You, 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 you don't even want to think it's happening. No, nobody could do that. Yes, I'm telling you. Uh, left to our own devices and uh, possessed by the evil one. We're capable of great, great evil. And evil is being perpetrated on Christians in our day, perhaps more than it ever, befo- ever before in, in human history. Perhaps. But Christians have suffered throughout human history. Whether it's because we bear the name of Jesus the Christ or because we live in a world in which we're subject to illnesses and all the rest. Whatever it is, Christians suffer, and it hurts a lot. Sometimes you gasp for air. It hurts so much. And Paul said with reference to it, see, I consider that the sufferings, he's not denying they're there. He's just saying, he's making a comparison. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He is not saying, put on a happy face and deny your pain. Oh, no. He's allowing folks who hurt to weep and seek help and not be at the top of their game. But he's saying, can you see the intensity of your pain and suffering? Get it. Get a hold of it, and when you stack it up alongside the weight of glory that awaits us, then the sufferings, is not, they're not worthy to be compared with, with the volume, the quantity of glory that there will be. Now, I cannot relate to that because I'm in, you know, I'm in this time, and you, 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 we hurt in this time. That's the way it is. But, but if Paul says, oh my goodness, it's coming to an end. You will not go through this eternally. There'll come a time when the glory of the Lord's return and you being in his presence will entirely overwhelm anything We've lost experience and been pained by this side of heaven. Now, I, 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 I know that might not be much comfort to someone in the throes of great pain, and I'd be reluctant even to say that to them. But as we sit here now, try it on for size, would you? Would you try to remember we're not going to be here forever? What if God said, run the race with endurance, and by the way, There's no finish line to the race. How could you endure an endless race? It's grueling. You can't do it. So Paul is reminding us the race, which we are to run with endurance, has a finish line. When is it? Well, I don't know, but it's nearer than when we first believe. Jesus, who was crucified, is alive. And coming again. And therefore Paul says, wake up. This is what we have to look forward to. This is our hope. Wake up from sleep. Realize it could be today. Therefore let this hopeful expectation of the return of the Lord Jesus cause us to live differently. The preacher was speaking about this subject. The second coming of Christ in the 
church service. And a little girl at the end of the sermon leaned over to her mom and said, Mom, do you believe that, uh, that the Lord Jesus is going to be coming and that it might be soon? And the mom said, I absolutely do believe this. And the little girl said, whoa, 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 whoa. hurry up, mom, and comb my hair. She was affected, even as a youngster, to the reality of the Lord's soon return and wanted to be presentable to him when he returned. Folks, if the imminent return of the Lord is not affecting our behavior, we don't really believe in it, do we? So I ask you this question I ask myself. Are you living your life in anticipation of his return? That's the question. Get up, says Paul, for the day of Christ's return is nearer than when you first believed. Now, folks, when you get up from sleep in the physical sense, what is one of the first things you then do before you go out, start the day? What is it? Okay, thanks for the shower. That's a good thing. And when you dry off, what do you do? Yeah, you put clothes on. And by the way, isn't that a good thing? <laughs> yeah, you put clothes on. So you, so, so, so you wake up from sleep, and after a while, a shower and some cornflakes or whatever it is, you, you, you get dressed. You put your, your clothes on. And so in keeping with this, uh, Paul makes this spiritual point in the next verse, verse 12. He says, the night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Darkness hides. Light discloses. Evildoers prefer darkness. We, however, are to live as if in the light of day, we Christians are to have nothing to hide, nothing we are ashamed of. We're to live in the light. In fact, it's a military term. Our clothing, our attire for the day is to be the armor of light. Get ready for a battle. And how do you f- join the battle? How do you resist it? It's truth, the light of God's word. Get up, get dressed with truth. The night is almost gone. You know, that's a reference to the very dark, evil age in which we live and in which Satan has been permitted such great influence. But the night is almost gone. What happens then? Well, then the day is near. And what is the day? The day is the beginning of entirely new life, new reality upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, I say it again, the living Lord could return at any moment. If if he was dead, he could not. (laughs) If the cross was the end of the story, he, he, he could not. If all we had was the grave, he could. But we have an empty tomb, do we not? So, so the living Lord could return at any moment. Philippians 4, 5, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. James 5, 8, you too, be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming 
of the Lord is near. First Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Get up. That's what Paul says to us. Get dressed. Oh, there's something wonderful before us. We're invited to it, the return of the Lord Jesus. What are we to wear? We are to put on the armor of light. Folks, uh, people in our day, people of the world, uh, insist that they are the enlightened ones and we are the narrow, dogmatic, unsophisticated simplistic uh, Bible thumpers. So that's the attitude of the day. The, the, the world is enlightened and we're not. But the opposite is actually true. For instance, the world is in absolute utter darkness concerning God. Did you know that? I mean, there's reference <coughs> to God, you know, I want to thank you at award ceremonies. First of all, I want to thank the big guy upstairs. They don't know God, that thing, you know what I mean? So the the world lays claim to God. I believe in God, but the world doesn't know the nature, the character. The world surely doesn't know the holiness of God. It doesn't know him. Not only that, the world is in utter darkness concerning man, human nature. See, the world thinks we are basically good. I just don't understand that. Even if you don't read the Bible, just read the newspaper. I don't think it's displaying the basic goodness of man. Good night. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. We are not good. In fact, all of us are sinners. It's not that we sin only. That is our nature. We're conceived in it, born into it. And all of us, therefore, fall short of the standards of Almighty God. The world is in the dark about it. The world is in utter darkness concerning life's purpose. Did you know that? Uh, um, The world thinks the purpose of life is personal peace and affluence. Accumulation of stuff. Personal peace at all costs. If it means recourse to uh, artificial substances, if it means uh, sexual pleasure, out of bounds sexual pleasure, whatever it is. The purpose of life is personal peace. In other words, if it feels good, I'm going to do it because that's the purpose of life. For me to feel good, for me to be happy, you know what I mean? Personal peace and affluence. That's the accumulation disease, which victimizes the people of the world and us to a lesser extent. It's all material, all material. That's what the world thinks is the purpose of life. But the Lord says, no, no, no. Our, our, our lives do not consist in our possessions. Are you kidding me? That's not true. You know what else? The world is in utter darkness concerning death and eternity. The world thinks that when one of its own dies, that one is immediately ushered into the blissful presence of Almighty God, where they 
live in heavenly realms forever. In fact, the world is of the opinion that just about everyone's going to heaven. It's quite amazing to me. Those who clearly have lived in darkness and committed dastardly deeds still at their funerals, uh, you, <laughs> you hear the eulogy, which means to speak well of, and uh, I've been at ones like that, and... Y- Look, if you can't speak well of that rascal, you just can't. But the, but, but the world in its darkness will make up stuff about the most uh, uh, ungodly people ever. So everyone, anyone dies, I don't know if you knew this, when, whenever anyone dies, they go to heaven. Isn't that really something? So, no, no, no. The world isn't enlightened. That's not, that's not what, what happens. And so, so Paul says, no, no, we are to put on the armor of light to resist all of this thinking, wrong thinking about God, about human nature, about the purpose of life, and about death and eternity. Put on the armor of light. In other words, be enveloped by the truth of Scripture, which enlightens us. And so in light of the light we have, Paul says this in verse 13. Let us behave properly. As in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. So you have a collection of deeds of darkness. Paul is saying, in light of the soon return of the Lord, put on the armor of light. Don't engage in these things. You know what I find interesting? Look at the last two in the list. Strife and jealousy. You know, we might, we might be prone to say, well, you know, the drunkenness thing and the sexual stuff, oh, yeah, that's like bad stuff. But Paul puts in the same list of deeds of darkness, strife and jealousy. Now, maybe the other stuff is not happening as uh, widely in our churches, but strife and jealousy seems to be permissible vices. Strife, that means dissension, that means arguing, that means my way or the highway. That's conflict, which could be avoided, except that we're rather selfish. And jealousy, when someone in a church gets a position, gets an acknowledgement, is recognized in ways perhaps we're not, then jealousy said, and you know what Paul says? He says those are as much deeds of darkness as, uh, as uh, uh, carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, and sensuality. And you know what Paul is saying? Folks, if uh, he gives us this list and he's writing to Christians, he knows we're capable even now of doing these things. And so he's saying, look, I, I just want get up, wake up from the doldrums, from your spiritual insensitivity. Be aware of the time. That thing you're about to do, is that what you want the Lord to find you doing when he returns? And it could be at any time. So he says, get up and get dressed. And then the third thing he says is get to work. That's what happens. Most of us, you know, you're sleeping. Then the alarm goes off. You get up. Then you get dressed, and then you, you go off to work. And so uh, that's what Paul speaks about in the final verse that we'll look at tonight, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus 
Christ. Daily, we are to do this. Each day, we, you know, we put on our clothes. And the thing about clothes is that it makes us more, uh, oh, I guess, receivable, you know, to the people we run in to be in contact with. You know, you don't have to use your imagination about this. Clothes are like a good thing. You know, when you're interacting with people, it's really good that you're doing so like with clothes. And so every day we, we put on our clothes. They, they cover us clothes. They make us more presentable uh, to people. And, uh, and they're part of us all day. You know, in, in your waking hours, there's, uh, there's probably not a moment when you are apart from your clothes. Isn't that truth? Uh, thank you so much for bearing that out. You know, tonight, if you could just think of the ramifications of this. And that's it. Wherever you and I go in the course of a day, our clothes go with us. Don't you see that's what Paul is getting at? In the same fashion, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, wherever you go, he's supposed to go. Whatever you do, he is there. Whatever you say, he's listening. You're supposed to be bounded by, enveloped by, in the atmosphere of the very real presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, I am, Wednesday night and Sunday. Nobody, nobody, but you're not naked the rest of the time, are you? No, no, no. In the same sense in which you put on clothes. You know, after I read this text, I like made a deal. When I'm getting dressed in the morning, I'm using that physical material thing uh, to remind me to say, Oh, God, let me not for one minute in the day act as if I'm apart from you. You're not here. I'm an independent agent. Oh, God, let me not be spiritually naked. Let me be bedecked in the armor of light. Lord Jesus Go with me every step of the way. And furthermore, Paul says, that's not only the work we're supposed to do. Here's the second part of the work. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. I remember uh, before I was a believer, I was in the military and I was stationed somewhere and uh, in the town was an apartment uh, that I knew of that was a good source of drugs and alcohol. And I knew exactly where it was because I would frequent it. That's where I would go to, you know, make contact with stuff I, I uh, sought after to give me peace. You know, this kind of deal. But then I got radically saved. And... Uh, I kind of lost my appetite for that stuff, but not entirely. And I still found myself uh, playing games. Well, maybe I'll just ride by, see how everyone is. Let me just go, oh, the light's on, even though it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Just pay a visit, see how folks are doing. You see, I was providing an opportunity for the flesh. When I realized it, I took a different route in coming and going in that particular town. It was a much longer route. It wasn't a straight line past this place. It went all the way around. 
because I didn't want to, just as Paul said, I didn't want to make provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. On my computer, I have every, uh, what do they call them, uh, blocks or protections, I don't know what they are, uh, screens, fil- filters. I have every filter known to humankind because I don't trust me. I don't want to, uh, even inadvertently, find a site uh, that gives me sensual pleasure because then I'll be prone to go back to it. So I've made no provision for the flesh. I don't have that. Also, my computer is not in a private room that no one's supposed to enter. It's a family computer. When my kids come over, they could use it. My wife uses it, all this stuff. And not because I'm such a spiritual guy. It's because I realize how strong are the lusts of the fleshly nature. And Paul says, isn't this practical? He gives a positive exhortation. Here's the positive work you're supposed to do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it's kind of a negative thing. And while you're doing that, uh, uh, avoid giving opportunity for the flesh. That's, that's, what it's, that's, what it's, that's what it's saying. You see what I mean? Because we're not supposed to. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak. So in essence, Paul is saying, here's the work you're supposed to do. Don't make it easier for yourself to sin. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Don't make it easier. Draw lines in the sand. Take the long road around. Don't be in a car with someone you're not supposed to be in the car with. Don't have stuff in your refrigerator you shouldn't have for guests when they come over. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Now, Paul is essentially saying, look at here, folks. In light of the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming, make spiritual healthfulness a higher priority than physical well-being. The flesh, our physical nature, wants to be pampered and pleasured. We've got to watch it. And Paul is saying... Focus more on your spiritual being than your physical being, which is crying out for pampering and and pleasure. Paul says this, do this in light of the reality of the Lord's coming. Uh, Folks, there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. I'm pretty sure that's accurate, but I'm sure someone... Jim Hastings, I see right now. Jim, is, he's going to check me out on that. Is, that. is that right? Then I know it's right. <laughs> yes, because this is where Brother Jim lives. He would have made an unbelievable uh, ancient Pharisee or scribe. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking. And you know me, I mean it as a compliment, brother. But anyway, so, so there are 260 chapters in the New Testament. And there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. Meaning, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament talks about Jesus coming again. There are 27 books in the New Testament. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament refer to the second coming of Christ. For every prophecy in the Bible that pointed us to the first coming of Christ, there are eight that point us to the second coming of Christ. Folks, I think we're supposed to look forward to it. Yeah. 
So we are to get up, get dressed, get to work. We're not supposed to miss opportunities to share Christ with the world in darkness. We're not supposed to miss opportunities to glorify Christ here on earth while we have the time. We're supposed to get up. We're supposed to get dressed, clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ every step of the way, and we are to get to work. Why? In anticipation of his second coming. Can I mention something to you? The first and second comings of the Lord are entirely different. The first time he came to judge sin. He did it magnificently in his own crucifixion. But the second time he comes to judge sinners. If you have recognized what he did at his first coming for you, your sin was judged in his crucified body, then you will have nothing to fear about his second coming. You see? But if you have denied, rejected, and refused to acknowledge what he accomplished at his first coming, yeah, yeah, it's not good for you. It won't be good for you at his second coming. This being the case, could I invite you before you leave tonight to meet with one of our folks in the Connection Center? Maybe tonight you'll choose, as Tim did on Easter, many of us did at other times, to establish a connection with the Lord Jesus so as to look very much forward to his second coming. There are wonderful people who will be back there. You can access that room either way. Turn, if you go out this way, turn left, you go this way. No, you turn, you turn, just turn. <laughs> Keep turning and we'll find you. Uh, there'll be wonderful people there who are willing to pray for you about one of the most, no, about the most important uh, decision you could ever make because eternity uh, your eternity is affected by. So, Lord Jesus, uh, th- thank you for opening our eyes, giving us your mind, your thoughts, enlightening us. We were in darkness, a domain characterized by darkness, and have by faith been transferred to a different domain, the kingdom of the beloved Son. It exists now in our hearts and in its ultimate expression upon your return, O King Jesus. We look forward to it. We're not date setters. We're not guessing. We're not, that's not who we are. Like that little girl, we want to be presentable, attractive, without spot or wrinkle, in the center of your will, in anticipation of your soon return. So we say, with so many other of our brothers and sisters throughout the ages, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And this we pray in your name. Amen.